you were looking at the Canucks of the 90s using a lens from today, the trend wouldn't be hard to spot. Vancouver had steadily improved its playoff chances over four years, culminating with the seven-game Stanley Cup final against the Rangers in 1994. Over the three seasons that followed, the Canucks' results incrementally regressed to the point of missing the playoffs in 1997. The window of contention with that group had likely closed. It was probably time to restructure the lineup. But with a couple of stars on the roster, tickets to sell in a relatively new arena, and an aggressive owner wielding deep pockets, the Canucks weren't interested in rebuilding. Having learned a lesson from botched negotiations with Wayne Gretzky the year prior, the Canucks set their free agent sights on the most prolific player available in the summer of 97, Mark Messier. We put that team back on the map, man. Like There were some bleak times there for a while. For that next five or six years, he was the best power forward in the game. There was a confidence that we believed if we went out and played the way we were capable, we could score every shift. Now it's kind of league-wide. I want to come see the West Coast Express, you know, see these guys in action. That line sold tickets. That line cared about the community. That line gave back. We knew that we would never be satisfied unless we would win the cup. Everything. The whole thing. It's like a bad nightmare happened. In a matter of seconds, I mean, lives basically changed forever. Most pundits didn't believe Messier would ever make it to free agency. After all, the Rangers' captain had become synonymous with the franchise after leading the Blue Shirts to a Stanley Cup in 1994. New York GM Neil Smith offered the 36-year-old a one-year deal reportedly worth $4 million. It was good money, to be sure, but far less than Messier and other teams felt he was worth. Feeling slighted, Messier went to market and began fielding offers. Washington, Detroit, and Vancouver all made significant pitches, all of them multi-year packs worth anywhere from $15 to $20 million. By the time the Rangers tried to circle back with an improved proposal, Messier had already made the decision to leave. On July 28, 1997, Mark Messier became a Vancouver Canuck. It was a choice that stunned everyone in the hockey world, including his close friend and suddenly former teammate, Wayne Gretzky. My sort of feelings were probably similar to his in 88. Like, what is going on? Or what, what happened? And unless you're that person doing it, you don't know all the ins and outs. And so as probably as disappointing as Mark was when I left Edmonton, you know, it was tough pill for all of us to swallow. Uh, Adam Graves and Mike Richter, Brian Leach. Mark was uh, such a wonderful guy and did so many great things for not only the Rangers, but for the NHL. And we just... All of us, to a man, didn't see that one coming. We didn't see him ever leaving New York. You know, we missed practicing with him every day, hanging around with him, going to dinners. Uh, He was a great teammate and a good friend, and that was tough for all of us. Well, I was disappointed because we were trying to sign him in Washington. They got the deal done, and I don't think there was any difference in the money, but Mark had, had said that, he didn't feel comfortable being in the same division with the the Rangers after winning a championship with the Rangers, and we certainly understood that. So I thought it was a big move for Vancouver, quite a coup actually, to bring that player back to Canada and to that market. 
George McPhee had left the Canucks front office just a few months earlier to become the general manager in Washington, so he understood the impact the signing would have in Vancouver. To this day, it remains the most prominent signing of an unrestricted free agent in Canucks history. And as sportscaster Don Taylor explains, one that changed expectations entirely. When that signing was made, Messier still had that, you know, that reputation as one of the great players in hockey. Like still, even though he was older, it was, this is the final piece. And they've got all these other great players. There was still a whole lot of talent there. You mentioned Naslin, Bure, Linden, Lume, you know, Kirkbuck. They were all still there. The expectation, and when you look at the roster, you can understand why the expectation was they're going to make the Stanley Cup final and maybe win it this time. It wasn't just Canucks fans who got that feeling. The players did too. This team's for real. When you sign Mark Messier, now you're scared of the Canucks. Nobody's ever really scared of the Canucks before that, right? They were like, yeah, 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 they're, they're good. They work hard, but eventually we'll just make them go away. And when you sign Mark Messier, now you think Vancouver's legit. We're not just going to push them away, and they actually will have a chance to win. Backup goalie Corey Hirsch wasn't alone. Vancouver's face of the franchise, Trevor Linden, was desperate to lay claim to the trophy that had eluded him just three years prior and vividly remembers hearing the news that Messier was no longer his arch nemesis, but instead his teammate. I'll never forget. I was driving back from Worcester with Christina and had the radio on. You know, I think I, I think it was a July day and, you know, driving back from Worcester and and this news came on the radio. I was like, you know, kind of was like, wow, that's my initial, wow, that's great. And then as I kind of got thinking about it, I'm like, well, this is going to be an interesting situation because I only had one option. And the option was to offer, to say, this is probably the right thing to do if this is what you need to be here. What Lyndon would offer Messier would alter perception both inside and outside the dressing room. On the eve of the season, after seven years of wearing the C on his sweater, Lyndon felt obligated to offer the captaincy of the Canucks to the man regarded as the greatest captain in hockey. Pleased to see this on your sweater instead of a C, but uh, you gave it to Mark. Tell us about why that came about. Well, I just felt it was the right thing to do for me. And obviously, definitely from a huge standpoint, I felt like it was the right thing to do. Uh, he's a great leader and someone I admire a lot. And not going to change anything I do today. He just makes our team uh, a whole lot better. Well said, Trevor. Everybody admires you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I think on the outside, I was trying to be strong about it and say, this is the right thing. This is what I have to do. Um, but I think, you know, looking back, you know, hockey players want to have that hard shell, but it was a it was a big blow for sure to have something that I was uh, I was proud of, and and you know, it was a, a really odd situation. I think Pat was very uncomfortable with it as well. I remember talking to him in in Tokyo, and I think he was. I said to him, I said, I've I've only got one option here, Pat, and this is what I need to do. And I think he was very uncomfortable with it, but at the same time, it was kind of the situation, right? I think it split the dressing room, too. You know, you take the C away from Linden, give it to Messier. You know, I don't think that went over very well at the time either. I can't uh, really recall any player or players coming up to me and saying, you know, what they thought about it. It was just a feeling that you had. I didn't really think much of it at the time. It was probably more of a big deal for media and fans. Trevor still had a prominent role. But for us inside the locker room, it was just like, okay, well, you know, captain's a captain. Trevor, if we need some, Trevor will probably still be kind of captain-ish to some guys, right? But it also possibly divided the locker room 
again, I can't talk for other people because I mean, at the time I was going through my own issues. It probably did looking back, it probably divided the locker room. The feelings of Hirsch and Canucks color analyst Tom Larshide were echoed in the fan base. Linden was arguably the most popular player in Canucks history. And while Messier symbolized success, he was also the man who had ripped the Stanley Cup away from Linden three years earlier in New York. Now, in the minds of many, he was taking something else away. The already intense pressure for Messier to deliver was amplified yet again, especially considering the uncertain status of Vancouver's Russian snipers. Pavel Burry had fired his agent in the summer and asked for a trade, but at least he was on the ice. Alexander Mogilny was not. Unsigned and unsatisfied with the contract offers he'd received from the Canucks, Mogilny remained in California. But Messier had used pressure to create diamonds in the past. He'd led the Oilers to a cup after Gretzky had been traded out of Edmonton, and he'd spearheaded the snapping of a 54-year cup trope for the Rangers. If there was someone built to handle all of that pressure in Vancouver, it appeared to be Messier. Just ask Hirsch, who had been the Rangers' third goalie during the 94 playoffs. Mess was very good to me, and I learned a lot. I, I watched how he handled that team and how they went and won a Stanley Cup. I mean, we're talking in New York. It was 54 years since they won a Stanley Cup. And we're talking New York City, Madison Square Garden, and Mark Messier was the man to do it that led that team into one of the biggest pressure situations in cities in the world. What gets bigger than Madison Square Garden? It's like it's almost like as if the Yankees hadn't won in 54 years. And I saw him do it. So I thought that really you're getting a guy that's going to show this organization how to win a Stanley Cup. The Messier era officially began in Japan with the Canucks defeating the Mighty Ducks in the first NHL regular season game played outside North America. Messier scored in his debut, Burray had the winner, and Marcus Nasland opened his season with a pair of assists. After dropping the second game against Anaheim in Tokyo, the Canucks made the long trip back to Vancouver for a five-game homestand that included the New York Rangers. Messier scored in his first battle against his former team. Warren with Messier on the off wing. Messier scores! As if by script. And isn't that how he's lived his hockey life? But it was Gretzky and the visitors who stole the show. We knew as a team that... You know, it's great for hockey that we go play in Asia and all those kind of places, but it's also tiring, especially for a team like Vancouver who travels as much or more than any team in hockey. So going into that game, we knew they were going to be a little bit physically and mentally fatigued. Uh, We caught them at the right time and the right moment. I think I had a good game. I think I had a hat trick that night. The hat trick was part of a five-point night for Gretzky in New York's 6-3 victory. Messier would get his shot at payback in New York six weeks later, but he and the rest of his new teammates needed to get their feet under them first. The Canucks used the rest of that homestand to steady themselves in advance of a stretch that had them play seven of their next nine games on the road. No one foresaw a lengthy losing streak coming. No one ever does. But as often happens in hockey, Vancouver's offense dried up for just over a week, resulting in five straight losses to close out October. November began with a Saturday showdown against the Penguins in Pittsburgh with the Canucks determined to bump their slump. Burray, Nasland, and Linden all scored early before Messier added a pair of goals to stake Vancouver to a 6-3 lead early in the second period. But the Penguins stormed back to beat the Canucks 7-6 in overtime, a soul-sucking setback that extended Vancouver's losing streak to six games. 
It was the type of loss that made everyone wonder what management would do. Would it force Quinn to give in to McGilney's contract demands? Would he make a significant trade? Would he fire the coach? As it turned out, Pat Quinn did none of those things. But as six losses turned into seven, Canucks ownership had seen enough and did what most observers considered unthinkable at the time. I was at the morning skate with uh, Jim Hewson. The two of us were watching the skate and we went downstairs and uh, the rumor was Pat Quinn had been fired. Stan McCammon uh, is at the rink. He's going back to the, to the airport to fly back. And I said, can I get a ride with you? So Stan McCammon, I'm in the car with the guy who just fired Pat Quinn maybe 45 minutes or an hour earlier. And uh, he takes me back to the hotel and I asked him one question. I said, uh, what was Pat Quinn's reaction when you uh, told him that he was no longer going to be the general manager of the, and president of the hockey team? And he said, oh, he was very stoic. That's all I remember, you know, the word stoic. So anyway, I got back to the hotel. I called Pat's room and went upstairs and I asked, I asked him on the phone if I could uh, come up and do an interview. And he said yes. And I went in uh, his suite. General managers always had a big suite that was, that's all part of the package when they travel. And uh, I sat down and put on my tape recorder and I started the interview with Pat. And all of a sudden there was a knock on the door and he says, uh, the door's open, come on in. And in comes Gino Ojic and Pavel Burry. And they were crushed. They had tears in their eyes and they were very upset that Pat had been fired. And they thanked the coach. And then Pat looked at me and he almost broke down. And he said, this is why you coach. This is the kind of impact you have on men. You know, here grown up men coming in and they're losing it because They've just lost their coach and their general manager and their president. Uh, he was the super boss, that's for sure. For me, I mean, I'd been with Pat for 10 years. You know, he drafted me in 1988, you know, so it was a very unsettling uh, thing to go through. And it kind of felt like we were rudderless at that point. You know, we didn't have anyone kind of at the helm. So it was it was hard. It was the start of a very, very disjointed kind of few months players were dumbfounded so were fans through all the changes with ownership coaches and even the captaincy Quinn had been the bedrock of the organization with that foundation removed no one had any idea what direction the Canucks were heading in including other GMs like McPhee I was stunned by that move he was a terrific coach terrific executive terrific person for that market Sometimes you just don't understand the business because they couldn't come more talented than Pat in every regard. I do remember talking to Tom Rennie at the rink, and he was upset and obviously caught off guard as well. That was a tough day. I felt felt bad for Pat that day because he didn't deserve that. And a lot of times when you you have a new owner, and John McCall was a new owner, they're not sure what they should do, and they've got all kinds of people telling them, yeah, you should make a change when... He would have been a lot better off had he just left it alone. In the immediate wake of Quinn's dismissal, the tailspin continued. The Canucks returned to Vancouver having lost eight straight and were off to the worst start in franchise history. Those circumstances resulted in a new contract for McGilney, but despite his return to the lineup, Vancouver's freefall continued, as did public speculation about a new GM. 
Support for Unreal West Coast Express comes from New Balance. Hey, I'm an active guy, and New Balance has literally supported me for well over a decade. From distance running to trail running to walking my dog, I've always got New Balance on my feet. Lately, it's been all about the Fresh Foam X series for me. 1080s for the road, Kieros for the trail, and 880s for everything else. Support your feet and support local. Check out the lineup of Fresh Foam X athletic shoes today at your local New Balance store in Richmond, Delta, and Langley. At Toyota, our vehicles have always had quality and durability built right in. Because in winter, even our potholes have potholes. Quality means everything to us because it means everything to you. Lease a 2023 RAV4 LE all-wheel drive from $99 weekly for 60 months at 7.19% APR with $2,800 down. Order yours today. Visit shoptoyota.ca or your Pacific Toyota dealer. It's time to Toyota. After losing 10 consecutive games, the Canucks finally snapped their skid with a win in San Jose. But that victory quickly became an afterthought given the news that broke the very next day. Three and a half years ago, Mike Keenan, despised in Vancouver, led the Rangers over the Canucks in the 94 Stanley Cup Final. Today, as strange as it may seem, Keenan is now the man in charge of turning around the Canucks' sagging fortunes. Messier came in, and then a couple of months later, here's Mike Keenan? Like, are, are you kidding me? Mike Keenan, the guy who beat the Canucks in the Stanley Cup Final as coach, is now in Vancouver, and he's in without a chaperone, really, because there was no GM. Like, it's important to remember the sequence of the chaos. Tom Rennie was a coach, but Pat Quinn got fired first. A couple of weeks later, they decide, well, we better fire Tom Rennie as well, which is when they invited Pat Quinn back to coach, which was a novel management idea that was not acceptable. And they bring in Mike Keenan, but there's still no GM. And likely no words outside of the four-letter variety from fans. As reporter Ian McIntyre described, it was hard to believe what had actually transpired in such short order. Of course, the dots themselves aren't difficult to connect. Ownership brought in Messier in hopes of winning a Stanley Cup. And with those dreams crumbling quickly, Messier recommended the man who'd helped him deliver a cup in New York. John McCaw simply doubled down on his investment. It would have been an easier sell in any market other than Vancouver, for reasons obvious to almost everyone. Man, this is weird. I mean, this guy, along with Messier, those two men were so hated in the city three years earlier. What the heck are they doing in charge of the Vancouver Canucks? But Mike Keenan's resume at the time, you know, Stanley Cup champion with the Rangers, even though he only spent one year there, all sorts of success before that with the Blackhawks and the Flyers. There was the Blues blip there. So, yeah, okay, I guess it made sense. But looking back, there was that sense of they got Messier. They let go of Pat. They bring in Keenan. There was this sense of they're desperate. Hiring a coach with a proven track record was meant to signal stability. But ironically, the organization remained in disarray. I was a guy that was trying to get moved because the Herbe had just signed there. Kirk was there. And so I was trying to get moved, really, because I wanted to try to get a, a chance to play regularly in the NHL again. And there was nobody to talk to. There was nobody to trade you. There was nobody to even, you're like, okay, who's in charge of the ship? 
We didn't know if it was Keenan. We didn't know if it was Tambellini. My agent calls Tambellini. My Tambellini's like, call Keenan. Keenan's like, you know, doesn't answer his phone. Keenan, we don't know if Keenan's a GM. We like, like it was, it was chaos. Like nobody knew who was in charge. So I'm just floating in the abyss as a player trying to get out of there. So I'm sure there was a lot of other guys that felt the same way that they were just floating in the abyss. You talk about change of culture. Like, honestly, I, I know for a fact that, you know, the first month or two when Keenan took over, not one player other than maybe Messier wanted to go to the rink because they didn't know what the hell to expect. And, and that's the truth. Be that as it may, the job required Dave Babich and his teammates to be there. Amidst the shock of living in the bizarro world, where Vancouver's most despised rivals from 94 suddenly had control of the team, the Canucks began to win a few games, including Messier's return to New York. I remember more his first game back in MSG, how the fans treated him and how excited they were to see Mark back in New York. He gave him such a great ovation, which he obviously deserved. But I made no secret of this. When I played in L.A., I hated playing in Edmonton. I hated playing against Edmonton. For that matter, when I was in New York, I didn't like playing against Mark. You know, we we were too good of friends. And, you know, it's one thing your teammates. It's another thing when you're teammates at the age of 18, like we were. We grew up together. So I always found it difficult to play against Mark. If it bothered Messier, it didn't show on the scoreboard. The Canucks captain scored his eighth goal of the season in a 4-2 Vancouver victory. Two more wins followed, and suddenly, the Canucks had picked up 11 of a possible 14 points in Keenan's first couple of weeks behind the bench. This type of surge is fairly commonplace following a coaching change in hockey, and it can create the illusion that the problem has been solved. Behind the scenes, Keenan didn't believe he had the right mix of players. The coach was beginning to make his presence felt in the dressing room, employing a tactic he'd used repeatedly over the course of his accomplished career. When Keenan comes into anywhere, he makes an example of somebody, okay? Somebody that he felt has been in the organization a long time and they haven't won, okay? So when I was in Binghamton, with when I had my first camp with the Rangers, he comes into New York and he puts James Patrick in the Binghamton players' locker room and training camp, right? Like that's – so, you know, the, the NHL team's in the big locker room, the nice locker room. And the, the minor league guys and the rookies and all that, you're in like regular dressing rooms. You're in like, you know, you, you need to wear flip-flops in the shower. The, the hot cold doesn't work, right? It's like, it's disgusting. And there's James Patrick, you know, 10-year NHL veteran, NHL all-star sitting beside me, right? And just like, you felt bad for him. So Keenan comes into Vancouver. And I think there was, I, I can't speak for Mike, but I, in my own personal opinion, there was some, some of it was personal, where the Rangers beat the Canucks. You guys couldn't beat us, you're losers. Get the F out. And so instead of making an example of one person, he made an example of about seven or eight. Not surprisingly, the majority of those players were holdovers from the team Keenan got the better of in 94. There are a lot of ways for a coach to make an example of a player in pro hockey. Ice time can be taken away. An opportunity to play on the power play can cease to exist. Removing a player from the lineup catches everyone's attention. And then there's the kind of verbal warfare that was very much accepted at the time, especially from hardline coaches like Iron Mike Keenan. We were in St. Louis, I believe it was, and I went down after the game and uh, went into the locker room, and apparently that was the infamous night that Keenan took a strip off Trevor Linden in front of the whole team. And anyway, I saw Trevor uh, in 
part of the location of the dressing room, and I just uh, started to talk to him about the game a little bit. He said, oh, boy, I just got it bad from, I said, you're kidding. I, I remember having a conversation with Mike Keenan about that, too, uh, that I thought it was a pretty unfair way to rip a player in front of his teammates and so on. Anyway, that was that's Keenan. If I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have said anything, but uh, it was an honest emotional attempt to a degree to, to help uh, get him over a hump at the at a stage in this game where I felt that he had to move forward. I know he liked me, and, and he liked a lot of guys, but the guys that, that he wanted to get rid of, he just crucified. Like, mentally, just, it was it was horrible. And he tried to do that with, with even the guys he liked. The only guy he didn't try to do that with was, you know, Messier, and, and then I guess to some degree Pavel, just because, you know, Pavel would have just told him to go, you know, stick it up his arse. Most players don't have the kind of leverage a future Hall of Famer like Pavel Bure did. With his speed and goal-scoring ability, Bure was virtually irreplaceable. And having already asked for a trade, a show of defiance might actually expedite that request. While Keenan assessed his new roster both mentally and physically, the Canucks trudged through a dreadful December that saw them win just 2 of 14 games after that initial uptick. Keenan had seen all he needed to see and decided to shake up the room with a significant trade. Goaltender Kirk McLean, who had been the backbone of the 94 playoff run, and forward Martin Jelena, a back-to-back 30-goal scorer, were shipped to Carolina in exchange for veteran goalie Sean Burke, speedy scorer Jeff Sanderson, and tough guy Enrico Ciccone. The deal itself was decent business, but the message was loud and clear. Your past accomplishments with the Canucks had nothing to do with your future with the Canucks. The rest of the contingent that carried the battle scars from that loss in the cup final was beginning to see the writing on the wall. And for those who weren't, it was clearly spelled out for them. He called me in one, one, one time. It was about a month before the trading deadline. 97, 98, whatever, whatever it was. And he goes, he's, he sits me down and we, I think we won. I don't I forget who we played. I think we won four nothing. And he sits me down and he's giving me shit, you know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Then he finished. He goes, you know, if we don't make the playoffs, we're going to trade all you old fucks. <laughs> and you know what? Honestly, I, I, I looked at him and I'm, I'm like, Mike, well, well, thanks for letting me know. Because that was his way of communicating. He just didn't know how to just do it properly. While the core from 94 awaited their fate, there were a number of others who were in the dark as to where they stood. Players like Marcus Naslund, who had no idea what his future with the Canucks looked like. Keenan didn't have Naslund in a prominent role and, in fact, made him a healthy scratch on more than one occasion. Some players respond well to such tactics. Naslund was not one of them. It was a a weird time for players as well. It didn't feel like a solid foundation. Uh, There was a lot of changes in in management and uh, player personnel-wise too. There was a lot of moves and and there was erratic decisions being made, I thought. Yeah, you knew that there was something crazy going to happen every time basically you you showed up at the rink. So if you're into that, you probably enjoyed it. But I I like stability and I, I didn't particularly like that. Obviously, Mike Keenan wasn't a big fan of myself in the beginning. Well, Marcus was a tremendous talent. Like, it was clear, even upon his arrival, that he had a superior offensive skills. He could handle the puck. He was brave in how he played. He, he would go to the net. 
and he was always looking to score. He was just one of these guys that naturally was predisposed to to offense, but the team was in turmoil. You know, Mike Keenan's guidance didn't particularly help Marcus Naslin on an individual level, and Naslin kind of scuffled. Like he had he had glimpses of becoming this impactful offensive dynamo, but then he'd have other spells where you didn't really notice him. And part of that was maybe even a lot of that was just the general turmoil of the landscape at that time and the players he had to play with and, and the constant churn of the roster and everything always seemed unsettled. Like there was never, it felt like two weeks that were the same because there was always another trade or another change or, or something else had happened. As the players waited for the next shoe to drop, the Canucks continued to plummet in the standings. Trading McLean and Jelena didn't have the desired effect. Vancouver managed just a single win in the 12 games that followed the deal. It all pointed towards another major move. Burray wanted out, but that's not who Keenan was intent on getting rid of. And while trading Trevor Linden would send another seismic shock through an already flustered fan base, Linden himself was hardly surprised. No, not at all. I, I talked to Steve Tamalini quite a bit about it, and I said, like, this isn't going to, this kind of needs to change. And and at that point, we were such a disaster that, you know, I think it was a bit of a relief to kind of get out of the situation. And that's how guys were looking at it. You know, I think about uh, Kirk was traded earlier that year, and, and Marty was traded, and, you know, and it just, you know, just kind of, the dominoes were falling, and I was kind of next. But if Keenan was going to trade the man many still regarded as the face of the franchise... Where would he find a trading partner? Given the events of the six months that had led to this moment, it seemed only fitting that he cast his gaze upon New York. Back in the Big Apple, there was another forward who had fallen out of favor with his coach. Todd Bertuzzi was in his third NHL season with the Islanders, but had yet to fulfill the promise of a first-round draft pick. After scoring 18 times as a rookie, the burly 22-year-old winger had just over half as many goals the following season and had taken up residence in the doghouse of Islanders head coach Mike Milbury, who also happened to be the team's general manager. Well, I think the problem with me and Mike is Mike expected me to be Clark Gillies. He wanted this big, huge power forward to come in and, and intimidate and scrap and all that. I was a young 20-year-old. I was in a league with men. And back when I started, it was it was a tough, tough, tough league. Like The amount of guys you can go through the roster back in uh, 94, 95 it would have intimidated a lot of young kids coming in, and I'm not sure a lot of players could have played in that era. It was an eye-opener for sure, going into training camp. We had training camp up in Kitchener where I was living at the time, and we had training camp there, and there was anywhere from five to six fights each and every day and all that. It was it was an eye-opener for, for myself coming in and seeing what the NHL was about. Bertuzzi's blessing was also his curse. At six foot three and nearly 225 pounds, he looked every bit the part of the intimidating presence that Milbury wanted him to be. But Bertuzzi had never equated his physical stature to his identity as a hockey player and always craved the latitude to showcase the rest of his skill set, much to the chagrin of the man in charge. It was the fact that just not given breathing room in order to find out who you are as a player and a person. I think you're thrown into a role. They said, this is how you have to play. That's it. I think that's the way it was back then. Certainly a lot different now where guys are given an opportunity to kind of see what they're about, what kind of game they can go instead of being told what they have to be. And I think that I always had a difficult time and always fought with that. And I always identified myself as more as a 
a skilled player who at times will take care of myself and, and help my teammates and all that. But to be put into a position, into a role like that, there were some difficult times for sure. Unable to agree with Milbury on where he fit in the NHL, Bertuzzi felt there were too many roadblocks on Long Island and decided to let Milbury know about it. Well, I asked for a trade. It wasn't going well, and I thought that maybe a change of scenery and, and just something different was going to be the best opportunity for myself. I know when I asked for the trade, Mike sent me down to Utah, then called me back up, sent me back down to Utah. I ended up finally staying down there for 10 games. Played pretty well down there for 10 games. And that wasn't easy down there, too. It was the IHL. You weren't familiar with the kind of travel that it didn't take, but it was a little bit more skilled hockey. So you got to be able to just identify with it and find your way. We had some great veterans down there. We had Gordon Deneen. Uh, Mick Dakota came down with me. And Butch Goring was our coach down there. And uh, I can identify with him. He was just told me to go out and have fun and play hockey. And I was able to do that. And with playing well down there, ended up being able to force a trade. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Sports Page. Like a mad scientist trying to create a bigger monster, Mike Keenan changed the mix of his hockey team again today, sending Trevor Linden, yes, Trevor Linden, to Long Island in exchange for Brian McCabe, Todd Bertuzzi, and a third-round draft pick. Well, there was shock, and there was a lot of anger, of course, because Trevor Linden was one of, well, not one of the, he was the most beloved sporting figure in the city's history. And some people didn't know enough about Todd Bertuzzi and Brian McKay, but the Canucks were getting back very good young players, very good prospects. There was a lot more certainty at that point to Brian McCabe's game than Todd Bertuzzi's. I still remember the, the famous line of Mike Milbury, who made the trade with Keenan. Milbury said this about Bertuzzi. He said, when we drafted Bertuzzi in the first round, we thought we were getting a Mack truck. Instead, we got a Volkswagen. I'll never forget that. I don't think Keenan had a clue how good Todd could be or what he was getting. Mike's agenda was to get Trevor out of there. I don't think there's any question about that. He felt that the team couldn't move forward with Trevor's leadership and that that move had to be made. What he got in return, I can say with confidence that he relied on people within the organization to make that deal. And just as I don't think Mike Milbury at the time had done his homework about where Trevor was at in his career and what kind of player he was going to be for the Islanders, I'm not sure that the Canucks really knew what they were getting in return. Canucks play-by-play voice Jim Hewson was there to chronicle that return, which was positive from a production standpoint, if not in popularity. On February 7, 1998, one day after the deal was consummated, Todd Bertuzzi and Brian McCabe debuted in Vancouver. Bertuzzi scored the game-winning goal and added an assist, while McCabe played over 25 and a half minutes and was a plus three in the Canucks' 6-3 victory over the Sharks. Their performances did little to quiet the disgruntled masses, but the organization was able to step out of the spotlight for a couple of weeks as the NHL paused its schedule in order to allow its players to participate in the Olympics. Ironically, Linden was a part of Team Canada's disappointing fourth-place finish, while Messier's exclusion from the Canadian roster was a topic of much debate. When NHL hockey resumed in late February, the Canucks still had nearly a third of their season in front of them. But there was very little left to play for from a team perspective as Vancouver sat at the bottom of the Western Conference standings. 
For certain individuals, however, those circumstances provided a long-awaited opportunity. I think the fact that the team wasn't doing very well, the, the crowds weren't there uh, right when I got in, and you were able to just go out and find yourself and play hockey. And I think the Trevor thing, I learned a little bit more. I lived in Vancouver and played in Vancouver, the amount of impact that he had in the community and what he had for that run that they had to the finals against New York, that you can understand the amount of impact that he actually had. And that, But it wasn't me only by myself. I was coming in with Brian McCabe, who was an outstanding hockey player in his own right, first-class guy, one of my best buddies. And it was easy just to come in with him and be able to grow together and find our identity with that team. Determined to showcase his offensive prowess for his new franchise, Bertuzzi got off to a great start in Vancouver, racking up seven points in his first four games. By season's end, his 15 points in 22 contests with the Canucks nearly matched the total he'd achieved in 52 games with the Islanders that same campaign. Those results were doing no small part to averaging over 15 minutes of ice per night under his new head coach. Mike was one of the biggest reasons for my success, he believed in me right from the get-go. He just told me to go out there and, and just play the game that I thought that I envisioned myself playing. And he gave me the space in the room. And obviously, with having Mark Messier there, Alexander McGillney, we had Pavel Burry. And then you had a whole bunch of character guys. You had Donald Bashir, Gino Ojek, Enrico Ciccone, Brad May. Steph, Scotty Walker, Chris McAllister. Like, we had a lot of character, tough, tough players. And it was just a little bit easier for myself as a bigger guy to be able to go out there and play hockey and be able to find my role on my own. I remember, you know, when we were playing against him when he was on Long Island, scouting report, it just hit him a couple times early in the game and then it'll, it'll quiet him down. But players like that, I mean, as big as he was and as skilled as he was, that's what, that's what you had to do. And, and then hopefully they didn't figure it out. The potential was there. It, it, it just didn't, it didn't shine in, in Long Island at the time. Babich would end up being the last of six more Canucks traded after the Linden deal, as Keenan stayed true to his word. Bertuzzi's strong individual finish didn't significantly alter the fortunes of that year's team, which finished last in the Western Conference. The steady stream of unpopular moves had both failed to create a contender and alienated a considerable chunk of the fan base in the process. Well, the fans gave up on that team. You know, the building was half full, if I recall. They had a real tough time. There was uh, so much anticipation when Messi was coming to the Canucks that, oh boy, this is it. He'll just bring everybody together. He was arguably the best leader in the game, best captain of a hockey team. Lo and behold, the whole thing fell apart. It was a, It was just a disaster. And look at the players they had at that time. I mean, you know, they had Messier, they had McGillney, they had Burry, they had Linden, go on and on and on, and Kurt McLean and goal. I mean, they had all the pieces. And with the addition of Messier, you thought, and McGillney, you thought, well, there's nobody going to stop this team. And yet they couldn't even make the playoffs. You know, it was terrible. Despite the fact that they were bringing in star players, despite the fact that I think they were trying their best to have a winning team, they weren't winning fans as they went along. And it, I mean, it showed in the building. I had season tickets in the day and couldn't give them away a lot of nights in that 96 to 98 period. I would take my season tickets and take them down to Big Brothers or Boys and Girls Clubs and ask them if they could find somebody to go to the game. And, and sometimes they couldn't. People were disengaged. And I think a lot of it had to do with 
Pat was gone and he was such a beloved figure in the community. Some of the people who worked for him were gone. There had been so much change and so much upheaval that people just didn't accept it then, didn't believe in where the team was going. And, and I suppose ultimately they were right because that team did very little on the ice. Less than a year after believing they were an impact player away from a championship, the Canucks had become irrelevant and unrecognizable. Messier's signing had been the catalyst for a series of unforeseen events that had left the future of the franchise in question. And for the first time in more than a decade, no one was quite sure who to ask for answers. Coming up on the next episode of Unreal West Coast Express. Keenan always wanted to be GM and coach. That was his thing. Well, when Berkey came in, Keenan lost that. I didn't like Marcus Nassel as a player. I thought he was underachieving. I thought I'd have to move him again. I was never worried about management. I was never worried about really the coaching staff. I was just more worried about finding myself as a player. The way I looked at it as this team's got to keep it is traded Burry. I'm kind of in the driver's seat here. The group had a talent base that was going to flourish in the near future. I felt that he saw me as someone that he he wanted to build a team around, which gave me obviously a great confidence boost. Unreal West Coast Express is a production of Toolkit Content in collaboration with Go Goat Sports. Audio production is by Andre Deacon. Writing and narration is by me, Scott Rentoul. Podcast supervision comes from Aaron Johnson. NHL game audio courtesy of the National Hockey League. Special thanks to the following NHL personnel, Hannah Riednauer, Matthew Maniker, Teresa Wiltshire, and Nick Martinez.